So I would urge every teacher, every leader, every parent, every person who has any sense of passion for young people, children and families to engage with this. So you have until the 22nd of July at 11.45 p.m., very precise from government, so that's not exactly when it closes, to share your voice. Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again, everyone. Sue Byron. Hello there. Adam Lowing. Hello. And together, we're going to explore the 2022 Education Green Paper. But first, Chris, what you reading for? What you reading for? So over the past week, I was introduced to a fairly recent paper by um, Peltier et al. Uh, so it is from 2022. So I think last couple of months it was released. And it's called What Do Teachers Know About Dyslexia? It's Complicated. And it is a fascinating paper. It's, it's based on um, a study in America. So how transferable this is to a UK context, I don't know. But what's really interesting about it is that it studies the um, opinions and understanding about dyslexia of a wide range of teachers in US schools. And the thing that comes out from it that is really interesting um, is that lots and lots of teachers have a a mishmash of a scientific understanding that they've had shared with them through professional development alongside a lot of misconceptions that haven't been addressed. And so for someone like me who sometimes runs kind of professional development bits relating to reading, it's really interesting to learn how important it is to actually bluntly dress, address, I should say, misconceptions before or as part of um, the sharing of uh, more uh, a more scientific understanding of what dyslexia is because it seems to be the case that you can share a more scientifically based understanding of dyslexia and that can exist alongside these misconceptions rather than superseding them so um yeah just to note on that person who is um the chief kind of like author of that paper, Tiffany Peltier, is well worth following on Twitter as well, speaks uh, a lot of sense and is really well informed on the subject of reading. So well worth checking her account out. So uh, Sue, what are you reading for? Well, uh, this book was suggested to me by um, a very successful Pilates teacher. It's called The Imposter Cure uh, by Dr. Jessamy Hibbert. Um, and it's um, for people who think they have the imposter syndrome, which I don't know whether you've heard of imposter syndrome. Um, it's very common, apparently. Um, I think women are supposed to suffer from it more than men. Um, and research shows that it has quite harmful effects on people. Uh, it's very widespread and it affects the way that you work, the way you think about yourself. Um, and it can be quite devastating to your abilities that you feel like a fraud 
and it can disproportionately affect high achievers, surprisingly enough. Um, I haven't read the whole book. I've read the first two chapters, um, but apparently there are exercises to do in here. In fact, she sent me uh, something that I had to write about her um, to help you with your emotions, your beliefs, and to help people um, stop feeling so bad about themselves and believe in themselves. Um, I did a little bit more research about it to find that there are two psychologists in America that thought women should stop believing they have imposter syndrome and it could be that they work in very toxic male environments. But that's another, that's another issue. So it's very interesting and I would recommend it. So uh, Adam, what are you reading for? So I'm I'm rereading and being greedy, I'm reading uh, two books that go together. So I'm going back to Jim Collins and Good to Great. So uh, it's an old book, an old series of books now, over 20 years. And Jim Collins was an industrialist in America who looked at what makes a difference between companies, goods uh, and great. And then what he then did was then write a follow up material which is based on what he called the social sectors, what we'd call the public sector in this country. And Colin starts by saying that he thought that you'd find no learnings from the private sector because profit is the key driver of the private sector. And clearly that's not the case of the public sector, but actually he argues that many things that he learns are entirely transferable. And um, I've revisited that really in terms of some of the schools and organizations I'm working with. One of the things I really like is that it's a study of over 30 companies and public sector organisations. And it essentially says, unlike the title might lead you to believe, there is no quick solution in this growth of organisations. It's about evolving rather than revolution. And there's a key principle in there, which is the flywheel principle, which effectively says that it takes a disproportionate amount of effort to get an organisation moving the right way you'd like to in terms of development and culture. But when it does, it just takes off. Uh, so I said I've read this before, uh, but revisiting it and well worth a read, I'd say. Kieran, what are you reading for? They all sound really fascinating. Um, and don't worry, Sue, sometimes Chris and I will have read a chapter of a book and we'll be recommending it because we've uh, enjoyed it so much. See, there's, there's no requirement that you've, uh, that you've finished it. Mine is um, mine's a blog post from Dr. Sam Sims, and it was actually published the day of recording. And it's called Evidence, Expertise, and the Self-Improving School. And so obviously, Sam has lots of experience in the, in the field of school improvement and teacher development. And essentially what this is, is an exploration of his reading, which sort of brings to light three ways in which, and this is a direct quote, evidence interacts with expertise to contribute to the self-improving school system, which actually kind of ties into what you're saying, Adam about that in perpetual motion once you've got things in place so yeah it says it's a nine minute read and but it's it's definitely worth all all nine minutes so this week we're going to discuss the send green paper from 2022 and chris and i accepting that we have a positive expertise in this area have drafted in sort of the the big gun so to speak Adam and Sue, would you be kind enough to tell us who you are and where you're from? I don't know if we start with you, Sue. Sure, okay. Um, I started life as a primary school teacher um, across a couple of boroughs. Um, 
then being Senko before I left teaching for four years, to set up a parent partnership scheme um, in a London borough. Um, very early days. Um, they weren't independent at that time from the special educational needs team. So I was actually based in the SEN team and my line manager was the SEN manager, which was very interesting because my job was to support families who were, the word was used as fighting against SEN. So it was a very interesting um, four years. I moved from there into the alternative provision system and became um, a teacher in charge of an assessment unit before then becoming deputy head in a key stage four provision. From there, I moved to the local authority, back to local authority to become the manager of the behaviour service. Um, that lasted a good long time until um, they shut it down, as many boroughs have, as many uh, services have gone. I then worked for the Spring Partnership Trust, worked with Adam um, before setting up my own business. And now you may know that I'm doing my own business with Adam. Doing the same sort of thing, behaviour outreach, school improvement, mainly for me around behaviour management and um, individual pupils. I was about to say, you weren't kidding about big guns, Kieran. <laughs> We've, yeah, I am going to say almost nothing this podcast. I'm just going to listen and learn as much <laughs> as I possibly can. So my name's Adam Lane, and so my background, I had, um, I started my career outside of education, so I had a commercial sales background, and then uh, in my mid-twenties, went into education, I, I was fed up with doing things that were soulless, and I wanted to work with families and younger people, uh, so my progression education was very much along the teaching, learning, assessment, pedagogy style routes, and in my schools a free form entry school in a very affluent area i said to my then head teacher oh i'm looking for some some, some progression and they said oh there, there could be something coming up and effectively that school then sponsored a school in an area of relative deprivation and i went through a process and i was appointed the head teacher of that school so we talk about community which was 65 percent people premium uh, around 10 percent based on gypsy roma community and a school that had been in some really hard times. Uh, so it was a sponsored academy conversion, which effectively saved it from going to special measures. So I was the first head teacher there. And my then CEO told me, it'll be absolutely fine, Adam, you just need to do a lot of tinkering with teaching learning and it will fly. And very early on, I met Sue and her colleague who then worked for the local authority behaviour service. And they did a behaviour audit of the school. And one of the recommendations that came out was that the school had a number of children of high level of social emotional mental health needs whose needs were being unmet and were a high level of distress and that Sue recommended urgently we establish a nurture provision to meet their needs and, and I remember saying to Sue uh, with the arrogance and ignorance of um, beginning my role of headship that's lovely Sue that's great I'll, I'll get around to that in year two year three and then I remember sending an email to Sue after two weeks on Saturday night whilst watching X Factor saying, oh my gosh, there's a level of need in the school I have no idea I've never come across before. Please, can you assist me? So had a lot of dealing in that school with special educational needs, a lot of dealing with alternative provision. I worked as a strategic partner with a local PRU. Um, 
And then after that, she went on to another large school, or went, sorry, went to a large school, should I say, large primary school, which again had uh, SEN need and have had lots of experience working with the local authority and specialist teams and looking about working with not only children but also the families as well. So also a lot of experience into safeguarding and looking about how education, health and care integrate uh, together. And that's me. Brilliant. Thank you. I think that, that really helps set the, the scene, I think, you know, um, and like before you mentioned it again, Chris, I was all, should I have used the term big, you know, big guns? I don't know. Is that is other thing people say anymore? But, you know, I, I don't want to underestimate the amount of expertise that we have with us tonight. You know, I think we're quite lucky. So we can really go deep into what the green paper could mean for lots of children, lots of our potentially most vulnerable children. And so I think the best place to start is with what stood out most to you in the paper. Was there anything, Sue, that really stood out when you first read it? Yes. Um, and I really don't want this to sound negative. Um, but for me, the thing that stood out was the description of the current state of affairs, the, the rationale for, for the green paper. Um, in a way, it's heartbreaking because I was around for the 2014 changes. I was working at a local authority. Um, I witnessed the optimism, the changes, all the meetings that were going ahead. Um, this, this fantastic new way of working was going to come to fruition and make things so much better. Um, it didn't go wrong. Um, I think what happened in part is what happens a lot of the time in the government um, bringing new legislation. They only go so far. They give you the bones and they let local authorities put the meat on the bones. And I think that happened very much so here, that um, various authorities diversified and things went in different ways. An example of that is the borough I was working for worked very closely with a contiguous borough, the one next door. And yet the document that you ended up having for an education, health and care plan was so different, it was astonishing. Um, and I know that's addressed in this green paper, which would be amazing. Um, but I, I just the, the facts and the figures about children with special educational need, um, having worse outcomes, being represented, represented uh, in greater numbers in the justice system is, is very, very sad. Um, they actually use the word vicious, the vicious cycle of late intervention. I mean, that's a pretty heavy word to use, isn't it? But it actually describes what goes on. Um, so that stood out to me. That, that was the big, the big thing that stood out. But the honesty, I think, um, and the, the truth that has been recognised um, in what is going on. Um, the other thing that, that there's a lot obviously in there, but the thing that I thought was quite hopeful was the recognition of the challenge and the role of SENCO, the SENCO, because there is somewhere in the paper that says that one of the greatest indicators of success for SEN children is the school that they come from. And apart from the expertise within that school, I'm assuming it's the SENCO that's driving the support for that child. 
So I think the recommendation that SENCOs should um, have an NPQ, should be part of the leadership of a school, um, that they should be given protected time and enough admin support is absolutely key. I've worked with lots of SENCOs who you could describe them mainly as being on their knees, trying to do the job that they do. Um, so I think those are, the, those are the two things that stood out most for me. Yeah, I don't wish to get this wrong, but I think we had a head teacher from Canton recently, Cassie Young. And I think she was head teacher and the Sanko at the same time. Am I remembering yeah. correctly, Chris? You know, what, what an intense situation that must be in. And I think it, it is sort of shared across um, that sort of particular cohort from our, our profession. It's really interesting you say that there's a lot of honesty, because that was one of the things that didn't come across in the white paper. You know, there was a lot of opportunity to say how well the government had done since 2010 or 2015, whichever, mm. whichever year they wanted to. So uh, did they write this report themselves? This, no, this, this was commissioned. Um, but I think what we have to remember is, um, I think there's no hiding place for this. I don't think it would have been possible to write anything other than this. Um, and the other thing about the, the green paper is that it, it represents the best that the government can propose to put these things right, but they're not actually committed to doing it. This is a discussion paper. Um, so they've, they've uncovered the hornet's nest. Uh, the hornet's nest has been uncovered. And, you know, we have to hope that it doesn't take too many years for these changes that are proposed to A, be put in place, and then B, go through the system. Um, because it, it sounds like quite a dire situation. Well, I've seen the dire situation. I think Adam has too. Um, I was talking to a parent today um, with a teenage son um, who has one diagnosed special educational need. He's in the pathway for another but it's a two year wait to get the assessment for the second difficulty. So his needs aren't being recognized in the school because there's no diagnosis for this. And it's, it's very difficult. So the context within which schools are working has changed dramatically over the last five, 10 years. The support's fallen away and that doesn't help schools. A friend of mine has um, a child who is, um going through who is looking to be um, identified or the school believe they might have a particular special educational need and again they have said this is a relatively affluent school and the school have effectively said you can wait two years or you can find a private way to do this you can fund this and we were talking several thousands of pounds yes, for yes, yes. um that you know in this case this might be a family that can scrape the money together but that is not what we should be relying upon. So yeah, this just, it yeah. rang true with just a, a story that um, related to my own. Um, yeah, it's, it's going on. I've been approached by two families now to um, ask whether I could find a private clinical psychologist to undertake assessment. Um, and I know the second family couldn't really afford it. And in fact, they were talking about disability living allowance as well, because this, this child has this one identified special educational need. Um, and I approached 
one clinical psychologist that Adam and I both know very well, and he is so busy undertaking private assessments for children that he is now taking bookings well into the new year. So even if families can get the money together, it's very hard to find somebody that can do the piece of work that's required. Um, it, it's, yeah, it, it's not a good situation at the moment. Not, not, not good. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, if it, it feels like it's potentially set the tone for the conversation that we're mm. sort of just starting to get into. Was there anything, Adam, that really stood out to you when you read it? I think similar to Sue, it is the scale of what the government are saying is required, which if we are within the system, we all know that, but it's quite stark to see it laid out on paper. And I would also back up with Sue, this is completely different than white paper. Whereas the white paper feels like a political manifesto with cheap rhetoric that sounds fantastic. Uh, the green paper lays clearly where we are. And I, I, and I think with laudable transparency, I, I think it's, it's clear. It also sets where we need to go to. But I have hundreds of questions in terms of how we're going to get there. And the green paper does start to lay out those, those paths and those steps. But I'm interested, who are the bodies that are going to make this happen? How is this actually returned to reality? And uh, again, Sue's touched upon this, but I mean, one of the things that really stood out to me, which ties in here, that one of the things Green Paper says is that in terms of tribunals, if parents go to tribunals, 96% of them are successful or partially successful. And Sue and I both worked together previously in a very affluent London borough, yet the school we worked together was in an area of deprivation. And it was well known that the number of EHCPs was completely disproportionate. They were in the area of affluence because the, there were parents there who not only had the financial means, but it's effectively a legal process. You need to have a level of education you need to have capacity in many ways to be able to take these battles. And therefore, for some of the most vulnerable families, most vulnerable children, they simply can't. And the green paper lays that out. And it starts to answer how we might get to a better place. But the thing that really strikes me is actually it almost then generates far, far more questions than answers. And I'm intrigued in terms of what happens next. What actually is going to make this to come into reality? which I, I, I truly hope is the case, but I just question quite how it is uh, at the moment. I think what you're describing is almost what Bourdieu would have called cultural capital. You know, obviously we've got this version that we're dealing with in schools at the moment, but having that situational awareness to know when you can press to get certain things in a social situation, that, that, that awareness isn't universal and it typically comes with actual fiscal capital as well as cultural capital together so i think yeah it's really interesting that that is possible and probably doesn't help the system that's already struggling under a lot of pressure and, and the thing is kieran that and the paper talks about this it talks about going through a tribunal puts financial but also emotional uh, distress on families now as a professional, you can sit there quite objectively and say, well, it's okay, mummy, it's okay, daddy, it's okay, carer. If you go through these steps, eventually you will win your case. 
but actually each of those steps is a massive hurdle. And if you're the parent or carer, that is your child who's going through these steps. And we have a cumbersome system in many ways, which is beyond just the award of the HCPs. You may think that the award of the HCP, EHCP will be a panacea. It really isn't in many cases. In many cases, local authorities will try to maintain placement in mainstream. But, and that's actually where the battle kicks in there as well. And again, working with families who, if you imagine you battle so hard to get to the award of the EHCP and then the school is not named that you're going for, it's just another challenge there as well. So actually, for vulnerable children and sometimes vulnerable families, it is an unfair and unjust system currently, which the Green Paper recognises, but I'm not quite certain I fully understand how we're going to turn that on its head um, in the short term. And I, I will just interject there because absolutely echo what Adam said. And it was my, my deep joy for four years to support those very families. And I so enjoyed it um, because I, I felt I was leveling the playing field for them because they were having to negotiate really tricky systems with, with language that was, at that time, this was many years ago, it, it felt almost deliberate um, that it was used in that way, that it would um, cut out the families that, that, that didn't know how to use the system. They, they weren't middle class. They didn't have um, the wherewithal to, to attend meetings, to speak up. They didn't have the skill set. They couldn't write letters. I remember writing letters to people. It was hard. And there is something in, in the green paper here about those um, independent systems now. And uh, I think trying to make um, the system fairer for everybody. Um, but I, I, I don't know how that, that bit is going to work. May I ask a perhaps slightly blunt question? Um, what you've talked about there is about the, the, the logistical difficulties of turning this green paper um, into reality over the medium term. Do you think that from your knowledge of the system that there are likely to be, or it's likely to require quite significant investment to make this happen? Is at heart, a lack of money, uh, one of the aspects here. I know the paper itself talks about that or describes the situation as not delivering value for money at the moment, which, I mean, the tribunal process itself suggests that perhaps. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps it isn't a case of, you know, the money not being there. It's a case of a, a system that's not joined up and so money's being wasted. Do you get an impression on this at all? Or um, is it not something that you can possibly work out from your situation? I don't know, most definitely, most definitely resource is a massive, massive issue here. So it's the sheer volume of resource, but also how the resource is actually then utilised. The other fact you've got to remember here is this is a, this is a three-pronged problem, education, health, care. So it's a shortfall in each of those three systems, and it's almost where those systems then meet are often children the highest level of SEND who are then at the most disadvantaged by those flaws. So effectively, uh, from my part, and, and so you can disagree, but yes, it's about money and education. 
It's about money and health and money in the care system as well. Totally agree. I think it's important to say, um, you know, there isn't a magic money tree. There isn't a bottomless pit of funding. And having worked for the local authority, I actually did used to sit on um, the moderating panel where all the papers would come in and we'd have to make sure it's a big multi-agency panel and make sure uh, that there was parity and that the scarce resources, and they were less scarce then than they are now, went to the right cases, the most deserving cases. Um, I then sat on the panel that decided where children should go, the placement, the provision. And there were some very in-depth conversations. So, you know, you, you, you have to feel sorry for local authorities in a way. They've had the funding stripped out from underneath them and they are trying to do the same job with uh, a smaller funding pot. Uh, social care, similarly, um, and I remember the, the, the process starting in CANS, mental health services, years ago. Um, colleagues would, would be dismissed, colleagues were disappearing gradually over the years. And, and it's just, it's a shadow of itself now, mental health services. Um, if we're looking at early intervention, which would be very useful as a preventative measure, um, you can get in there early, address a problem, support a child, then they might need more expensive provision further down the line. Um, the paper talks about early years and identification in early years. Things like speech, language and communication needs are very well picked up in early years and uh, they can be addressed and attended to. Uh, but again, I believe funding for health visitors was slashed and moved from the health service to local authority who had no money for them. So health visitor numbers plummeted. Um, and I did some research on this and children are lucky to be seen by a health visitor now, uh, a fully fledged health visitor. And a lot of the checks are done by assistants. And I think the number of children who slip through the net now with autism, speech, language and communication needs um, and other needs has, has really grown and they're just not being recognised. And the expertise isn't in the early years system because, again, that's addressed in this, in this paper that they want to skill up the early years settings. They want to provide training for SENCOs there but they just don't have it. So these poor children rock up um, into the reception classes with needs that haven't been recognized and the school then has to hurriedly uh, refer them for assessments out to the services that are then cash strapped and they have the long wait. Sometimes children turn up to school that can barely manage a day in school. We've seen that, Adam, haven't we? Absolutely, So, And if I go back to your, your question, Chris, regarding resource, I'll, I'll give an example that uh, you may have a child who is displaying a high level of need and you believe that it's social, emotional, mental health. So you would previously have gone through CAMS to have assessment, but CAMS are strapped for resource so that that assessment waiting list is infinite. So what happens is 
that you can privately commission a clinical psychologist. So clinical psychologist comes in uh, and with significant cost, that produces a phenomenal assessment with so much accuracy and clarification. And one of the recommendations is that uh, the child would benefit from therapeutic support, but actually most importantly is for the family to have family therapy. So you've got a clinical psychologist saying that if the family can have family therapy, the needs may be met for the child, fantastic. But the question then comes with who's going to pay for that? Well, the school cannot afford that. It is beyond the, it's, it's impossible for school. The health system will not pay for that and social care will not pay for that. So because none of the, the free limbs have the money in the coffers, the recommendation that a clinical, a clinical psychologist has put forward which can make all the difference to not only that child, but possibly also their siblings as well, never happens. So what happens then is we put a raft of interventions in school that do our very best to meet the need, but we're not clinical professionals in school. And ultimately, I don't want to say watering stones, but actually it's never going to have the effect that's required. You know what the solution could be, but there's no money to put that solution in place. And that's deeply frustrating for the child and the family and also professional as well, which then leads to frustration, which is perhaps why the Green Paper says the system currently is so adversarial. And that's not just about families against schools. That is about schools against local authorities, education against care, care against health. And because it's such an imperfect system, there's a real danger we'll end up blaming each other. We're mm. actually anybody's fault. It's, it's the system rather than individuals yeah. who are doing very, very, very best. I totally agree. I've sat in meetings where it's been like throwing the hot potato. Uh, you know, do you think you could fund this assessment or do you think you could fund this course of counselling for this child that desperately needs it? Um, and it's not because the professionals don't want to do this, it's because they have no budget. I've seen, <laughs> I've actually seen um, caseworkers coming out of um, placement panel, it used to be called. I hope I haven't identified where it was. Um, they've worked on a case where a child required a certain level of provision um, in an education, health and care plan or a statement, whatever it was called then. Um, and they've worked really hard, they've got a fantastic relationship with the family, they know exactly, you know, what the family have requested. They've gone into this panel and it hasn't been granted. And I've seen caseworkers in tears, local authority caseworkers. So it's not big bad local authority, it's, it's, it, it's just that there isn't the funding there to do what needs to be done most of the time. And the little bit of funding that there is has to go to the right children, has to go to the most needy. Uh, so the threshold is rising it's, it, all the time. It, the thing that, in, from my incredibly novice perspective here, the thing that jumped out at me from my reading of the Green Paper was this idea of early intervention and the extent to which it clashed with my experiences in schools. Because often what seems to happen is that schools feel at least like they're intentionally being kept in a holding pattern because to delay something is, is over the longer term 
while it might cause issues in the short term, it's, you know, solves a temporary problem because you have a child who perhaps um, has needs that can't be met through mainstream provision. And yet there aren't, there isn't the, the spaces available for them to go to where they would be better, where their needs would be better met. And so there's an acceptance that, oh yeah, we know they won't be with us in year three, but we've just got to kind of hang on because there's this, there's this backlog, there's this delay. And reading the green paper, seeing that at least in this paper, they recognized that that had significant long-term costs, both for, of course, the people involved, but also financially. It makes the system less financially efficient was interesting. And at least to, to my as I say, novice ears, um, refreshing to, to read. Bluntly, Chris is right. Chris is correct, because if you have a finite pot, which local government does have, and there is no more money, then what do you do when the money is spent? So actually, the bureaucracy and the hurdles that exist do delay the process, and the end result is that children stay in settings longer than they should do, which is of no benefit to anybody in the slightest. But what the Green Paper does do, and I'm going to try to adopt a slightly more positive tone, because actually the Green Paper is saying it's not okay. It does recognise this, and it's saying we have to move from the status quo. So that is a positive, that actually early assessment identification has been talked about forever in education, alongside intervention as well. But actually, the Green Paper is saying, well, despite all of that, it's not happening and we have to change it. So that's definitely positive. The Green Paper is trying to say, let's make a difference and let's move things. Would you agree with that, Sue? I would indeed. Um, and I'm, I'm trying not to sound cynical because these were the same aims in the 2014 changes and before then. Um, and a lot of what's, not a lot, some of what's in here is replacing uh, things that were stripped away that we already had in place and were stripped away, family hubs. Uh, we had children's centres. And I, I, you know, you always, I wonder um, where we'd be now if the children's centres um, hadn't been closed down. They were the best place for early intervention for the families that didn't know how to apply for something, uh, how to access counselling, how to access the health visitor. Um, it'd be great if they come back, that'd be fantastic, but it's not anything new. We've got the troubled families um, talked about in here. Uh, that's been a long-standing um, initiative that the local authority has been um, supporting the, the families with the most complex needs. Um, but again, I suspect that the funding hasn't been there to do a really thorough job for them. Um, I would be very, I would be over the moon if, if, <laughs> if this could come to fruition. I think it would be amazing. But it is a proposal and it can take years for legislation to be passed to actually um, push this through. And I, I did write down that that legislation needs to be strong because when local authorities are cash strapped and a guidance says should, 
they don't have to do it. If it says must, they have to do it. And I've, I've seen this. We don't actually have to do it. You read the guidance thing. Oh, gosh, you have to do this. No, the guidance doesn't say that. It's should, not must. And some local authorities, if you, if you give them any wriggle room, they will, they will wriggle out of it because they don't have a choice. It's not because they don't want to do it. That sounds very negative. <laughs> Sorry. I, um, you're, never, you're not going to get any a hard time for a sense of cynicism from this end, um, particularly when it comes to, well, when I say this end, from me at least, when it comes to yeah. this um, government. Um, I apologise if I feel like I'm going around in circles. This is less of a question than a point, but just thinking about what you've described and thinking about the issues with early intervention um, and, and the desire to make that happen, it seems utterly inevitable to me that even to get to a, even if it were the case that there were, there were enough money in the system, were it to be better allocated, there would still have to be a fairly significant upfront cost to change the system. Because if you started putting into place high quality early intervention, then, well, that, that's going to, even if that is going to delay things, sorry, it is going to support better outcomes down the line, that's not going to play out immediately. And I worry immediately, so on the point of cynicism, about the, the, the political nature of that. It's very I'm glad hard. You said that. <laughs> it's very hard to get anything done where the outcomes are likely to be seen outside of an election cycle. You know, if, it's, if, 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 the, if something's going to be incredibly positive, but there's a good chance or at least a, even a half decent chance that another um, party, another government, another education secretary and other etc etc is in place then it seems incredibly unlikely to happen um i hope that isn't the case but um you'll forgive me if i'm not huge no, i totally agree I, I have seen this over the years short-termism um yeah and the other thing about this is it would require a dedicated period of double funding because you'd still have to look after those children with the complex needs that didn't benefit from early intervention whilst putting in the, the, the early intervention. And I, I, I fear that that would be very costly. Um, that's a tricky one. It's quite interesting to note, I think in here, a, a body that uh, isn't always perceived in education as being entirely positive, but actually the fact that Ofsted have said that 76 out of 141 areas inspected had significant weaknesses for SCNZ. It tells you that actually inspectorate clearly is dissatisfied with the state of uh, provision actually for young people. Uh, and whilst Ofsted is a, a, a agency which delivers on business objectives from the government, that's actually what Ofsted is, but actually it does have the power to influence change. So actually the fact that they are saying things are not okay is actually in this instance heartening. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you can move aside, not the fact they're reaching judgment on colleagues in those systems itself, but actually you look at the whole system and saying, this isn't working. They are a pretty significant body to in their own way, be raising great concern about factors. And ultimately if they keep along this path, any government is going to have to respond to some degree because those numbers can't go up, surely. You cannot have over half your 
local authorities being told they have significant weaknesses for SEND provision. Something has got to change somehow, you, you would think? Uh, there is such a lot that's positive, such a lot that's positive in here. Um, if, if, it, if it could be put into place, uh, the partnership working, um, the SEND and alternative provision mesh. Um, I think, this, if I understand it correctly, there is money coming through the system for alternative provisions to provide more respite placement for children, which is really useful. Uh, except because of late intervention, by the time you end up with a respite place for a youngster, very often you find that they're actually in the right place when they get to the alternative provision. And they, a good proportion of them don't, don't go back into their mainstream setting. So if we could get them earlier, um, you could attend to their needs and then put them back. Um, I find it fascinating, Sue, that the paper is talking about reforms to alternative provision. So it recognises there is not a universal purpose to alternative provision in our country. Let, yet there are areas in, uh, in the country, some say very local to, our, to some of us ourselves, that have no alternative provision. There is no key stage one or key stage two alternative provision. So therefore, to reform what doesn't exist is a pretty big step. And that actually really highlights to me again that whilst the review does lay out starkly where we are, there are pockets where it doesn't actually go far enough to address that. Now, the reason why that may be the case could be down to resource and money. It can actually be down to ideology and a view that there is no need for alternative provision. But from my experiences, I'm passionate about quality alternative provision has an invaluable part to play in the system. So I'm hoping the, if the green paper leads to us trying to reform alternative provision, the areas that have none, they might have to do something about it. Fingers crossed. However, in my experience, um, the alternative provision that I worked with uh, would often be a holding place for children. I think you mentioned this, Chris. It would be a holding place for children waiting to go into more um, SCBD provision through their statements or their education, health and care plans, and there weren't places. The, the SCMH, SCBD provision was full. The local authority couldn't afford to pay for um, outbar placements, and so the children sat in the alternative provision, thus blocking places for others to have respite or to come into care, um, which then led to children being excluded because it was the only pathway into an alternative provision. So what I would say, though, it's, I agree with that completely, and you and I have experience of seeing that evolve local authority, or the actual, that actual local authority, and to their credit, or not entirely sure it was a local authority or an academy trust within the local authority who was responsible, but actually they did lead to creation of additional uh, SEN schools, in that case, EBD, SEMH schools, which then did free up the alternative provision to be what it should be. So yeah. the point I would take there is that's indicative that you cannot put in piecemeal solutions. So it's not just about plonking an AP in an area 
but actually if you have the alternative vision, right, where are the special schools the children may go on to? Where's the behaviour outreach service that then goes alongside this? It's about putting complete solution in place, which means that somebody's going to take an overview. You cannot do this in isolation. The Green Paper does say that. It does, it actually addresses that. Local yeah. offers, Absolutely. Local and putting together panels and boards that are going to drive this. So again, that's a positive, that's a real positive. If that comes through, that's how you find the solutions rather than getting individuals or individual organisations to try to do the impossible. I mean, I'm looking at my questions and I'm struggling to see one that we haven't answered in the last 15 minutes. Um, because I was going to go, okay, you're allowed to focus on three things, but your answer there, Adam, was brilliant. It just it was like, well, you've got to focus on oversight of a complete cohesive sort of solution. So what I'm trying to think of is, is there any way that we can sort of end on a positive and thinking about the, the future? I don't know, Chris, if you've thought of anything as we're going along that, that will allow us that sort of vehicle, because I think we've, we've done a really sort of in-depth analysis in the, in the time allowed? Well, I'd say a lot of the discussion that we've had um, has focused quite rightly on the current state of affairs and how that relates to the Green Paper. And yet both of you at points have said that there is a real refreshing honesty about the paper and that there are, um, if implemented, there are aspects of this, many aspects of it that would be ideal, which would be excellent. Um, I just wonder if you could go into a little bit more detail into the, for, particularly for a novice like me, parts of it that you think, yes, this would make a really significant difference to, um, to outcomes. Maybe a, a couple of things, if, if, the, if the, you've already covered those, then, then that's absolutely fine. But it might just um, gird the loins of any politician that is listening <laughs> who might well, think well, the, the, that the, the, there's a way the, forward. There's two things I'd say. The first, in terms of optimism, is as Sue said, this is a consultation paper. So I would urge every teacher, every leader, every parent, every person who has any sense of passion for young people, children, and families to engage with this. So you have until the 22nd of July at 11:45 p.m. Very precise from government. That's not exactly when it closes to share your voice. So that's the first thing I'd say. And most definitely that volume and quality of voice, collective voice, can make a difference. That's the first thing I'd say. And the thing actually, I'd, I'd say, Chris, actually your point is very pertinent. And I guess Sue and I have fallen into a trap slightly of this in that for many colleagues within the system or systems, we're very passionate, we're very frustrated, and we start talking about these factors and we end up talking about all the problems. It's almost like a therapeutic release. It all comes out. I saw it recently with a head teacher uh, for when I was attending, and the heads did exactly the same. And you all share horror stories, understandably. Uh, my positive is that we can make things better by working together. And if we adhere to the concept of being less adversarial, if we can start, if we can dismiss the concept the local authorities out to get us, CAMs are out to get us, EP won't work with us. If we can actually think about constructively, talk about practically solutions we can do, then it can make a difference. Now, I would say, particularly if I go back to the, the school and trust that Sue and I worked in together, in that setting, 
that school went through an absolute reformation in terms of meeting SEN needs. Uh, it wasn't easy. It took a huge amount of work. It wasn't perfect, but a lot could be done by people working together. So that, that, that's my, my positive note is, come on people, let, let's listen to the green paper. Let, let's talk together, work together, find local solutions together. If we can make it 5% better, 10% better, which is probably in our gift, then let's do that. We can't make it 100% better. It's too big. It's too big for that. And then the bits that we can't do, please do submit your response to the government. You've got to the 22nd of July to do that. Your voice can help make a difference. That, that's, that's what I'd, I'd say. Um, I'd like to say how positive I, I think the standardisation of the education, health and care plan, uh, thresholds, assessment, paperwork and processes would be. And that could be a fairly cost neutral event, I think. Um, and I think I read that they are going to digitise the education, health and care plans so that you don't have to have boards of paper. Um, I think in part it was brought about because I know that schools who work in areas where they border several local authorities have found it very difficult dealing with different local authorities. And now the large multi-academy trusts have suffered the same. They've had to deal with different standards, different paperwork, different processes. And to, to standardise that would be absolutely amazing. Um, children, families transferring from one place in the country to another, it would be a seamless move. That would be so positive. I'd love to see that. I would also like to see, in terms of early intervention, we talk about quality first teaching in terms of subject uh, matter pedagogy. I would like to see an SEND aspect to quality first teaching so that every teacher um, has not a basic awareness, but a thorough understanding of child development, special educational needs, um, alongside uh, teaching and learning. I think that would be very, very useful. Because at the moment it's a bolt-on and it's dependent upon what the school wants to offer. Uh, the idea of the SENCO being part of the senior leadership team would be very positive. Again, probably a cost-neutral um, procedure. Um, and having the MPQ SENCO leader qualification would be very positive. So there's, there's a lot, there's a lot in this paper that could be very, very good, very useful, and didn't need to cost too much. Just on to add on, if I may, to what uh, Adam said, and feel free to correct me if I'm miles off it here, but when, when you started talking about the idea of a voice and a collective voice and the importance of that in making sure that change is enacted, the incorrigible lefty that I am, I couldn't help but start thinking about the potential role for unions and the way that, I mean, traditionally that is a way to express a unified voice on subjects that matter to the profession. So I hope that this might be something that is increasingly seen to be important to uh, the unions and whether there's some level of power that could be enacted um, along those lines over the longer term. But again, I'm, well, I'm not an expert on this, so that's just what I think. <laughs> what I've noticed, Chris, actually, is that I was doing this week, uh, looking at one of my, my favourite go-to places, Twitter, to understand what's going in terms of uh, the edge sphere. And definitely, I'm not talking about unions here, but actually there are definitely lots of groups, be it parent groups, SEN groups, 
that are bringing together their members or their the people access those services to create one voice. So you can see there are SEM parental groups who are taking away mini consultation from their parents so they can present their one unified voice at that level. Uh, so absolutely, uh, my, my, my call to arms is, is, is broader than, than individuals, groups out there, then absolutely please do express your voice. And I have to say that whereas the white paper may be seemed detached from reality, that the green paper is very much based upon that. So clearly somebody is listening. They are listening. So therefore, there is an attempt here at making reforms. But if you don't think reforms go far enough or they don't cover what you want, then get your voice heard. And I agree with Chris completely. I, I don't think I was emotionally ready for this episode. And because you live through lots of this stuff. And because it's your day to day and you're just working through it, you never really stop. Well, certainly I haven't stopped to think about how all that together is really, it's like, it feels like this weight crushing down on a system that doesn't need that. So I think, um, you know, going for the, op, you know, the option of expressing your views through consultation, unifying a voice, I think if, if it can be a, a lever for change, then, you know, it's, it's long overdue. And I think, you know, we'll all be a whole lot better off for it. Yeah. So, I mean, with these things, you only ever feel like you scratch the surface. So I don't know if this is something maybe we return to in you know a couple of years time, 12 months time to see where we are. Because I really do hope that it is the, the force for good that it can be. I think um, I have to say you guys are naturals. I wouldn't be surprised if I saw you on your own podcast in the, the next couple of uh, weeks or months. You know, I'd definitely listen. <laughs> and so all this left to do is say, Thank you very much, Sue. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Kieran. Chris, an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure. And from me as well, thank you, Adam, Sue. It's been um, really enlightening. Thank you so much. And to everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.